Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihera Zazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. Why would a celebrated Chilean playwright decide to bring attention to a human tragedy all the way back in Syria that has been unfolding for the past seven years? I grew up during the, um, a dictatorship in, in my country. While outside, there was a situation of... Um, uh, war. So when I started doing theater and writing, that defined my work. When I uh, saw uh, this uh, this war in Syria and I experienced it by, again by just watching these videos, I thought I was I, I had a chance to sort of step out of my country to engage a different conflict, talking about the war in Syria itself, but also about about my own uh, personal history through that through that war. Mm. So my way in was to make a play about the impossibility of making a play. The play is about the conflict in Syria, but the play is also about theater making. Bay Area-based artist and director of Guillermo Calderon's play Busa, or Kiss in Arabic, Evren Ochkin, tells us about his decision to direct this play and about the role that art and theater can play in addressing pressing cultural and political problems. But first, we'll hear a conversation with Omar Shaked, Israel and Palestine's director at Human Rights Watch, about Israel's deportation order against him and the challenge to this decision, and to the draconian law it is based on, which Human Rights Watch has mounted in Israeli courts. Vomina contributor Professor Bassam Haddad spoke with Omar Shaker about Israel's passage of the nation-state law enshrining Jewish supremacy over Palestinians as a constitutional mandate and how shifting regional dynamics may impact the human rights situation on the ground. Omar, we are very happy to have the opportunity to speak with you for listeners who are not very familiar with the case. Um, First, let me say a couple of words that you are the Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch, and you have been the subject of the first intelligence dossier on a human rights defender here. And we are uh, speaking with you for the second time on this matter now that it has developed a year after, and it has actually called to attention a number of other quite problematic things within this uh, same context. Omar, I've known you for a long time now, uh, being a veteran of the uh, Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University, and you having been a master's student, and then I know you moved on to do your law degree at Stanford. And then uh, you took this job and you've had other, from what I understand, run-ins with the freedom and democracy-loving government. And uh, we are very happy to have you here. Before we uh, delve into a number of these matters and updates, we would love to hear a bit from you about your own background and maybe a snippet about how you got here and the kind of trouble that you have either encountered or caused uh, on the way. So first of all, ahla wa sahla and Ramallah in Palestine, Bassam. One of the things that's so difficult about the situation Palestinians have faced is so many Arab intellectuals aren't able to come and engage with Palestine. So it's really wonderful um, to see you here and uh, to continue these conversations that we've been having directly for many years now. So yeah, I've been working on human rights in the Middle East and um, in uh, the U.S. now going back uh, many 
20 years um, after graduating law school in 2013. I joined Human Rights Watch to cover Egypt um, in the aftermath of the coup, um, where I focused mostly on the mass killings of protesters, culminating in the, of course, uh, massacre in Rabah Square in August of 2013, um, which Human Rights Watch put out a pretty uh, significant 150-plus uh, page report documenting those killings, which led us to uh, get kicked out of Egypt. And, uh, you know, as you referenced, I've also had experiences being denied entry and or denied visas to Syria and Bahrain, among other places. But after leaving Egypt in 2014, releasing the report on the Rabah massacre, I worked for the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, for two years, where I primarily focused on representing two uh, Yemeni men who were detained by the United States in Guantanamo Bay. I also was part of the legal team representing Stephen Salaita, the professor who was fired from a tenured faculty position at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign over his criticism of Israel's bombardment of Gaza in 2014. And I worked on a case involving suspicionless surveillance of Muslim communities in the New York area. Um, I've been in this role as Human Rights Watch's Israel and Palestine director since October of 2016 due to some of the challenges, which we'll, we'll, we'll be discussing, I know, and I went into some depth with a year ago, over a year ago, actually now on status. Um, it took me a while to actually take up my post on the ground here where I operate between Jerusalem and Ramallah, covering human rights abuses by all authorities, including, of course, Israel, but the Palestinian Authority and Hamas as well. And I didn't move here until July 2017. So I've been on the ground now for about 13 months. Excellent. Or, or not. <laughs> Thank you, Omar. We would like to address a number of issues with you, but given that this is a case that has developed into perhaps many other mini and major cases and called, as I shared, a number of more deep and entrenched problems, let me just start by saying and reiterating that this is the first intelligence case that has been deployed vis-a-vis -a, -vis a human rights defender here, and it has caused and stirred a lot of controversy, including within the Israeli branches of government between, from what I understand, the Ministry of Interior on the one hand and the foreign ministry. But I'm sure there are many other details that we'd love for you to actually share and feel free to expand uh, onto other dimensions that uh, some of our listeners may not be aware of. And, and uh, frankly, I would love to be more clear on some of the details because there's so much that has been written about this and it's very difficult to discern uh, what makes sense and, and what is indeed factual. Thanks, Bassem. So let me actually start by backwards and then work our way forwards, because I think, you know, many have followed maybe the news the last few months, but in some ways there is a context that goes backwards. So maybe I'll start with a short sort of chronological account of where we got to where we were. So when I joined Human Rights Watch in 2016, we applied in July, actually several months before I joined, for a permit for Human Rights Watch to hire a foreign employee and for me to take up my post on the ground as Israel and Palestine director. The rest of our staff is, is Palestinian and Israeli nationals. So we applied in July. That process was supposed to take uh, 60 days. We did not hear from them until February of 2017. So we're talking about eight months later. And in February of 2017, the Israeli government denied a work permit for Human Rights Watch. At the time, they denied Human Rights Watch the ability to hire any foreign employee. And their argument at the time was that Human Rights Watch was was 
uh, propaganda arm for the Palestinians and was not a real human rights organization. Now, this story immediately picked up significant media interest, and within hours, in fact, the Israeli government began backtracking. And a week later, they um, allowed me to enter on a tourist visa, which I did do in March of 2017. I was actually on the airplane when the Israeli Knesset passed a law authorizing the Interior Ministry, in fact, mandated that they deny entry to those who express support for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. But nonetheless, I was allowed in, actually with the foreign ministry waiting for me with a sign at the airport to make sure there were no difficulties. And in the subsequent weeks, they gave me a work permit. So on April 26, 2017, I received a one-year work permit to operate in-country. The very next day, an Israeli organization called Shurat Hadin filed a lawsuit in district court in Jerusalem, alleging that the Israeli government violated that law by allowing me, which who they termed to be a quintessential BDS activist, into the country and allowing Human Rights Watch, who they consider to be a BDS organization, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, into the country. Now, without getting into every sort of uh, back and forth, it culminated in, uh, we did not participate in this lawsuit. We were never formally notified of it. But in November of 2017, the Interior Ministry sent us a one-page letter notifying us that it was officially reopening my status in the country and that it had determined that I have been calling for boycotts of Israel, as they said, since I was a college student until this day. And they gave us 30 days to respond to this allegation before they made a decision on my status. We immediately asked for the information on which this determination was based, because how can we respond to a cursory allegation without any evidence? In response, in December, the government furnished us with the first intelligence dossier, as far as we're aware, that's ever been provided to a human rights defender, which is a seven-page document that goes through my activism dating back to when I was a student at Stanford. You know, things like petitions I've signed, speeches I've given, screenshots of student group websites, tweets, etc. Um, we responded to these allegations in January, and then we bring us up to today, which is that on May 7th of 2017, the Israeli government notified us that it was revoking Human Rights Watch's work permit and ordering me deported within 14 days. Um, the Interior Minister and the Strategic Affairs Minister put out a press release about an hour before Trump's Iran nuclear deal speech, hoping to bury the news, no, saying that, in essence, um, they were going to do everything in their power to make sure I did not remain in the country. And in their November letter, there was an allegation that both HRW and myself were engaged in promoting boycotts, but their May 2018 decision focused squarely on me and my history, saying that I've been calling for boycotts uh, for many years and that that was the basis for my deportation order. We filed a lawsuit the next week challenging not only this decision, but actually the entire draconian law that this decision was based on, because the law marked the first time, actually, that the Israeli government has used this law to deport somebody with valid status in the country. So not only somebody who they've been denying scores of people, um, apparently based on this law, but to deport somebody with valid status in the country, who the government itself said in that May letter was not currently calling for boycotts. Their new position was that it was based on my activities before joining Human Rights Watch. The afternoon before I was supposed to be deported, the court gave us an injunction, freezing the enforcement of the deportation until, the, until it could hear the case. 
And so I am now here in the country solely based on an order from a court since my visa has been um, withdrawn. And we're currently in the midst of legal proceedings. In June, there was a hearing focused on the underlying substantive questions in the case. The interesting thing about this hearing is that it focused mostly on my social media posts promoting Human Rights Watch's work around human rights abuses that corporations are involved in in settlements. So again, the argument shifted because it became really a referendum on the legitimacy of criticizing settlements and specifically business operations and settlements. We then received about two weeks ago, so now we're talking um, very end of July, a, a decision from the court, which was ordering the government to formally respond to our lawsuit, which in the Israeli legal system is an indication that our case is being taken seriously. And that's where we're at at this point, where the legal proceedings are ongoing. The case has generated significant um, press attention, significant concern from embassies, uh, Palestinian and Israeli. Israeli human rights groups, but this fight is likely to drag on, not only in the courts, but really, frankly, um, in the court of public opinion. And it's increasingly becoming not only a case that speaks to the space for human rights defenders, human rights watch to operate, but really an entire referendum on the space for criticism and dissent in Israel. Again, we're with Alma Shaka, Israel and Palestine director for Human Rights Watch. Before I get to some of the implications, is there any connection between the way this case is developing and the new nation state law? I mean, is it part of the same set of procedures, sentiments, developments that uh, we're likely to see more of in, in Israel, Israel I mean, Palestine? Absolutely. For many people, this case came as sort of a shock, like Human Rights Watch, one of the world's largest human rights organization, being deported from a country who claims to be the only democracy in the region. But in many ways, it was an aberration. It's entirely in keeping with not only increasing restrictions on uh, those that work on human rights, but really a reflection of the state of human rights in the country. So at the same time that Human Rights Watch has been ordered deported, we know many other prominent international rights activists have been denied entry into the country, including representatives of the United Nations, including a staff member at Amnesty International. It comes at the same time that Israeli human rights groups are being advocacy groups are being accused of slander and defaming the army and the state are, are being put under loads of uh, pressure. And of course, Palestinian rights defenders face the brunt of the assault. They, um, in many cases, can face arrest, criminal charges, death threats, really um, at the apex of where the pressure is happening. But it comes at a time, Bassam, where Israel is in, has now for 50 years... 50 years, half a century, been occupying um, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. And that's an occupation virtually defined by systematic rights abuse, by institutional entrenched discrimination, a two-tiered system that fundamentally treats Israelis and Palestinians separately and unequally in every possible aspect of everyday life. And, you know, it happens at the same time that Palestinians who live within Israel continue to face deeply entrenched discrimination, which the nation state law that you mentioned very much encapsulates. Right. This is a law 
that is making as a constitutional enshrined value the supremacy of one group over the other. Palestinians make up 20% of the population of Israel. And this law more or less, you know, states as a matter of constitutional principle, which could have implications on a range of issues, that Jewish supremacy is a core, the core in many ways, value of the state. So, Bassam, what you have today on the ground, 13 million people who live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, about six and a half million Palestinian and about six and a half million Jewish Israeli. And you have fundamentally uh, entrenched system of discrimination that privileges those Jewish Israelis and that makes Palestinians live with an inferior basket of rights. And those rights vary to different degrees of inferiority based on whether you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel, whether you're a Palestinian resident in East Jerusalem, whether you're in area A, B, or C in the West Bank, or whether you're in Gaza, or whether you're a Palestinian refugee who now for generations have been living in refugee camps across the region while Israeli law permits a Jewish American or a Jewish European to move to Israel any day of the week. So essentially you have increasing clarity of what has been the guiding principle of um, the Israeli state for many years, which is demographic control and ensuring the control of Jews over Palestinians. To really wrap it up, it's not only that this Israeli government is increasingly trying to silence those that are critical of its rights record that are speaking out, you know, in recent recent days we've seen Jewish Americans or Jewish Europeans and others facing lengthy interrogations at the border, but it's reflective of a state that feels emboldened and has utterly disregarded the most basic principles of the international system. So can we say we're also, especially with the nation state law, can we say that we are seeing the promulgation into law of what have been some sort of a de facto existence, for instance, the question of the tension between uh, having a, both a Jewish and a democratic state and things of the sort. Is this something that we are likely to see more of the codification into law of things that have been de facto the case, uh, whether it has to do with uh, identity, location of uh, residents, the settlements, and other sorts of situations and the status of the refugees? Or, or is this simply a response to certain economic or, or political, of course, mainly political developments in Israel or even outside Israel? Could it be a function of the involvement that we may be seeing in the reference to the Trump administration's uh, positions? Or is this just the norm? So I think increasingly, I mean, the debate on the Israeli side for a number of years now has been, and I think the best example really is the de facto annexation of the West Bank. It's a matter of how quickly to move to what clearly is the ultimate objective of this Israeli government, which is to have you know, full control over increasing parts of territory and, and, and supremacy of Jewish Israelis over Palestinians. And it's always been a tension between the really only two sides of the debate outside of sort of fringe, really brave activists on the Israeli side has been you know, do we do it really quickly and, you know, move in that direction? Or do we sort of slowly, you know, the one and a half state solution has, you know, some people have turned term Netanyahu's policy. So for, there are tons of laws in the last three years that have been passed in the Israeli Knesset that very slowly spread sort of formal Israeli sovereignty over settlements in the West Bank. You know, that, for example, the regularization law in February 2017, you know, a month um, into the Trump presidency, which allowed 
allowed for the retroactive uh, legalization of settlements confiscated from private Palestinian land. So kind of the, the few obstacles that imposed some slowing down on Israel's expansionist policy, um, removing them. And I think certainly um, there is a sense among some in this Israeli government that this is the moment to sort of crystallize what they've been doing in the last, you know, for, for decades now. So what does that mean? It means getting embassies to move to Jerusalem. It means liquidating the issue of, so, so basically saying Jerusalem is a done deal. It means, in effect, with the cuts to UNRWA and other, you know, reports about what's happening on refugees to sort of take that issue off the table. It means to effectively, it means to really take what have become facts on the ground and try to kind of establish that as de facto reality of discussions now in the U.S. about formally recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. I mean, the nation state law is one example of that, of them saying, you know what, this is basically how we've been operating things. Let's now enshrine this, whether in law, whether in constitutional principle, whether in uh, facts on the ground, and in their mind, insulate themselves for, for however. And part of it, of course, is, the, is what's happening in the Middle East. Right. Where you have leadership throughout the region that is much more concerned about other issues and is very willing to work with this Trump administration on issues like Iran, on, on issues like extremism between quotes and the Palestinian issue, which never really provided much of actual pressure coming from the Arab regimes. But whatever little you know, so superficiality that would might have come from Saudi Arabia or Egypt, much of that pretext is gone. The reality is Israel enjoys with most of the strong powers in the region, in some cases increasingly even becoming formal, but if not formal, then um, de facto deep connections and relationships with regimes throughout the region. I mean, you have suddenly a dynamic where, you know, arguably the only state that's, you know, putting up some concern is Jordan um, over the issue of, you know, Jerusalem, given their ties there, but really throughout the region. So when you have the Trump administration, when you have the shifting politics of the Arab region, and frankly, a global populist movement across the world that has positioned itself as in opposition to universal values, a, a rise and look at Europe and the increasing ties between between governments in Eastern Europe um, that um, are relatively right-wing and and Israel, even you know Russia, you know ties between Russia and Israel, it's quite clear that the confluence of geopolitical factors um, in the region is leading this Israeli government to feel quite emboldened. And you can link the nation-state law, even in some instances, the thought that they could deport Human Rights Watch, which you know more than being about Human Rights Watch was really a warning signal not only to domestic human rights organizations, um, but frankly, to many others that want to be critical. Um, you know, if they can deport Human Rights Watch, one of the world's largest human rights organizations, um, from here, what does it mean for everybody else? What does it mean even for, you know, foreigners who are married to Israelis are studying here who, you know, could say the wrong thing and suddenly be served with a dossier and be, be asked to be deported within 14 days? Omar, is there a window here beyond the um, regional and international dimensions you discussed? Is there a window that might close and therefore it's instigating this rapid movement, whether that window is related to the uh, Netanyahu government being in power or the uh, coming to power, I guess we should say, uh, of Trump? Is there a an immediate moment uh, that we could point to as a window that might be closed soon? 
and this is, is pushing for for these developments, or is it just part of a uh, an ongoing process? I think it's more. It's it's hard. The window will close. I mean, this confluence of you know this particular coalition Israel, which is by far I think the most extreme in the history of the country of this U.S. administration, which I think is it's always been not beyond not an honest broker, but really provided a green light for for many Israeli abuses. I think you know this Israeli government, this U.S. administration, this confluence of Arab politics throughout the Arab region is one where it's hard to that window will will shift and close at some point. Um, and there are signs of developments that are countercurrents to what's happening at the sort of top levels that I think the Israeli authorities are aware of. But for now, for you know, for a long time, for example, under the Obama administration, uh, one of the arguments Netanyahu would make to push back against the more right-wing parts of his coalition was, hey, I can't, you know, the U.S. will criticize us if we do that. And he can't, you know, say that. Or he might say, look, you know, the Arab region might do X or Y or Z. But in Increasingly, those arguments are going down. So I think there's a sense of urgency among some on the Israeli right to consolidate their wins while they can, knowing that that could change. But when will that window close? It's very difficult to know. I mean, again, there are currents that suggest that maybe things could shift, um, you know, starting with U.S. politics. The Israeli political scene is hard to imagine. Whenever the next elections come, even if Netanyahu's tenure as prime minister comes to an end, a government that has fundamentally different position on these issues, and it's of course difficult, and you know, uh, you know, best best Sam to imagine in the short or even medium term changes in political orientations geopolitically of key powers in the Arab region. But I think there is, you know, a possibility, especially if you look at trends in, in the UK, for example, um, on uh, you know within the Labour Party, or you know. Uh, look at what's happening now with Bernie Sanders and, you know, young and uh, progressive American Jews and Democrats. There are some signs that there could be a shift coming from parts of the international community, but um, it's hard to know when that might happen. And, and even to what extent the Israeli government is really considering the ramifications of these decisions, because ultimately they're, they are taking a cost. One of the reasons why the foreign ministry has opposed my deportation, I think there are still voices within the Israeli government government that realize that many of these measures are ultimately counterproductive. But um, there is quite a sense of emboldened, emboldened nature that nothing is impossible of hubris in some ways among this Israeli government. And uh, that's sort of what's driving a lot of these decisions. Omar, thank you very much. I, I will close with the with the last question about uh, this particular case with Human Rights Watch and with you regarding the potential scenarios that might develop based on the conclusion of this case. Uh, what sort of precedent might this set if things go one or another way? I mean, this case, for so many reasons, Bassam is, is I think, an, a bellwether. It's one of the reasons why our court hearing was packed and why I think people are very closely watching this case. And um, there's so many dynamics within the Israeli government that are really being tested. Um, in many cases, I think the Israeli government had hoped that the two weeks they'd give me, I'd be out of the country. They picked a time in which Iran, the Iran nuclear deal was coming up, the U.S. embassy move. You know, they made it about BDS, which in Israel is really a red line. And they thought that that would inhibit Israeli NGOs from coming out in support or Israeli journalists from covering the story. But they miscalculated ultimately. And ultimately, you know, the court issued an injunction. And now this is dragging on, continuing to be um, a source of a headache, I think, for those in power. So, Bassam, I think, you know, 
Right now, we're waiting for a decision at the district court level. It's hard to predict what that decision might be. There are signs that are, you know, while, while we had a positive sign of this most recent decision, you know, the hearing, uh, I think, certainly created concern that, that the judge is inc- might be inclined to rule against us. But in any scenario, however this goes, the losing party is likely to appeal to the Supreme Court, right? So in the court system, we, we might face a scenario where, you know, you're having a discussion about whether or not in Israel today it's possible to criticize um, settlements and business activity in settlements. And the implications are, are quite, you know, significant. If the Israeli government does succeed in deporting me, it would not only be the first time in Human Rights Watch's 30 years documenting rights abuses here that we've been barred from operating within Israel and the West Bank. It would also put Israel in the camp of countries like North Korea and, and Sudan and Cuba and Venezuela that have barred access for Human Rights Watch staff at a time in which we have offices and operate in Lebanon, Jordan, and Tunisia, among other places um, in the world. You know, so I think it would be significant for Human Rights Watch. I think it would be a message sent to Israeli and Palestinian rights groups, you know, many of whom are under loads, enormous loads of pressure. Already there, there are many groups, especially on both sides, are facing funding crises. There's been a very coordinated Israeli effort to target the funding of rights groups and advocacy groups here. There's an indication that if this happens, it could shrink or even evaporate the space for rights groups to operate. And I think ultimately it will be an indication if they can get away with doing this, not only about you know whether or not you can be critical or dissent in Israel or Palestine today, but really the extent to which the entire matrix of you know human rights pressures and concerns has any re- resonance, right? You know, you have a scenario which now they're kicking out someone who documents rights abuse, <laughs> right? And if they get away with that, you know, if all the international pressure can't stop an internationally recognized organization from doing their documentation work, what does it mean about the ability of international community to stop the underlying rights abuse? You know, what I will say, and uh, this is something I've learned, you know, referencing back to where we started the conversation about experiences, um, you know, getting denied entry in places like Bahrain and Egypt and Syria, is sort of what I'll end with, which is ultimately I believe that no country will succeed in hiding its rights abuses by expelling those who document them. Thank you very much, Omar, for this not just insightful, but also, frankly, a holistic view because you go way beyond the local and regional context to frame this as as something that is probably bigger than this case and and even this particular context here locally and regionally. So that's really informative and we really would like to continue speaking with you as this develops and are very grateful for the efficiency with which you've delivered all of this. This was remarkable. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bassam. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Omar Shakir is Israel and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch. He spoke with Vumina contributor Professor Bassam Haddad, Director of the Middle East and Islamic Studies Program at George Mason University and co-founder and editor of Jadaliya Azin. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. To learn more about Vumina and our partner, Arab Studies Institute, please visit jadmagazine.com. Thank you.
A group of actors discover a script set in Damascus. They eagerly begin performing what appears to be a romantic melodrama, believing they will learn something about what living in Syria is like. Then everything explodes. With subtly shifting perspectives, the play Busa, or Kiss in Arabic, compels us to continuously question our grip on reality. It's a mystery and political thriller dressed up as a love story. I think Guillermo, being a Latino playwright from Latin America, is not that scared of heavy topics. He's coming from a very different artistic history where theater is a political act, and it's a place where politics and difficult conversations are at the center of their theater. That's Guillermo Calderon's KISS director, Evren Ochkin. In terms of this specific play, I think as a person who went through the Civil War, if we want to call it that, in Chile, you know, the authoritarian regime in Chile, he saw what was happening in Syria and started reading the news and was called to do something. I think he just could not make peace with the idea that he had to sit by and not do anything. He was very aware, I think, of the fact that he had never been there. He doesn't speak the language and all of the other obstacles that he would be facing. But what the play is really getting at at the end of it, and I think what he decided was true for him as a playwright is, as artists, not being able to do something perfectly is not a good enough reason to not do anything. Guillermo Calderon was born in 1971 at the height of uh, Salvador Allende's popular unity alliance government. He came of age under the brutal dictatorial regime of Augusto Pinochet. His uncle was killed by Pinochet's security police. His work has dealt with issues of oppression, dictatorship, human rights. In one interview, he said he sees parallels between Pinochet and the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad. Tell us also about how he went about writing this play. Yeah, the, this is the hardest play that I've directed in terms of talking about it to yeah. audiences because there are so many twists and turns and reveals in it that Guillermo has created and we're, I hope, honoring in the production that you know I don't want to tell people because it's sort of, it's a bit of a spoiler alert. But the way he went about it, which I think was super smart, is rather than trying to write about Syria, he focused on the West's incapability to understand Syria. So the the main characters in the play are actually a, a group of American artists trying to put on a Syrian play and doing their best, doing their research. The play really revolves around their misunderstandings and how we find out about what they misunderstood, what they got right, and at the end of the day, in what ways they're going to, once they realize how wrong they got it, that they don't give up and that they want to do it better. They mm. want to do it right because what's at stake for them isn't just about a play. It's about because a story. Because he was in Germany yeah. when he wrote this play. Yeah, because he was. he was commissioned by a theater in company in Dusseldorf, Germany. That was an, also an opportunity for him to meet and speak with Syrian refugees and hear their stories. Is this play, Kiss, also 
a way for him to learn more about Syria. I'm sure that had a lot to do with it because when these news break and the images like the little Syrian boy on the Turkish beach comes out, you realize how little you know. Mm -hmm. And I think he was very aware of that. So this project, I think, was a way for him to learn more and not necessarily in terms of just the details of what happened, but try to understand what it might be like to be a Syrian right now, a Syrian refugee right now. He did have Syrian artists in Germany that were working with him. As we all know, you know, Germany and all of Europe is where a lot of the Syrian artists, theater artists and otherwise, have become refugees yeah. to. And really a lot of the Syrian work that's being done is in the diaspora now, not really in Syria in the same way. And I think he engaged with them. And there is one main Syrian character in the play that was played by the woman who inspired the character in the original production. And a lot of the details of how that character is shown on stage were because of the limitations and the personal needs of the actress that was playing that role. I wish I could give more details, but I can't. But um, whenever I talk to him, he talks about that actress very specifically and the ways in which it's impacted the text. And we've done our best here in this production to try to reflect some of those realities from the original person because they are such a huge part of the development of the piece. Yeah. In an interview, he said that theater should reach out and try to address this war and this tragedy in any way possible. So that's why he decided to write the play about the war in Syria, but also about misunderstanding the Syrian culture and politics. What drew you to this play? I saw a reading of this play two years ago, a year and a half ago, at Crowded Fire, and it was a puzzle. It was a big puzzle to me from the reading. It was in development. Guillermo was still working on it, so it hadn't been... It wasn't in its final form. And I remember being really excited by it, but realizing that I didn't get it, especially the last third of it or so. And I'm the kind of artist that if I don't get something, but it excites me, I'm, I usually step forward for it. I'm a big believer in my artistic instinct being I know exactly what this needs to be, and I have no idea, and I'm really scared. If I can find that connection in any project. So this was very much one of those. And when Shotgun Players in Berkeley approached me and Golden Thread to say they were interested in the piece, but that they needed a Middle Eastern producing partner, basically, which obviously Golden Thread happens to be in the Bay Area and is sort of the preeminent producer of this sort of work, we were very interested, uh, both as a company and myself as an artist. And it's been really the whole process of directing it has been about figuring it out. I had very strong instincts about the visual world of the piece. I had very strong instincts about some of the moments in the play. But tonally, I had a lot of questions. And my wonderful, poor actors have been very patient with me as we pull and push and try to get this thing right for an American audience now, which is sort of an interesting question as well for a play like this. So both as a director mm -hmm. and as a person who was reading this text, mm -hmm. what questions did it raise for you? I think the beginning of the play where they're doing the play the first time is very clear, what the intention is really clear in terms of 
the Syrian soap opera references and, uh, you know, I'm Turkish. So I have the Turkish soap opera references that sort of line up. I know what that world is very well and the acting quality and the staging quality that would need. Uh, the second part is sort of falls into a really beautiful realism and mm. where we really meet the actors we're putting on the show and that I had a really great, great grasp of. The last section, Guillermo has purposefully left very opaque on the page. He's interested in a group of artists because theater is a collaborative form, banging their heads against what he's put on the page and really making it work in the moment for their audience that they know. And that is exciting, but also quite scary. And so that was the question I had was, how do we do this third part where they're sort of trying to recreate the play with what they know and do it right enough so that there is improvement? But I also believe in that, you know, it takes more than just 10-minute conversation to get a culture right on stage. Mm -hmm. I know what it takes as a person who works with Golden Thread all the time, the kind of work it takes to immerse yourself in a culture. So I had a lot of questions about the balance of getting things right and also getting things wrong, but making that okay for the audience. Mm. Tell us about the premise of this play. So the play begins with an American troupe that has found a Syrian play called Busa, translates to kiss, kiss. in English, on the internet. And because they are very well-meaning and really want to do something to address the situation in Syria, they decide to stage it. And the, they don't know who the writer is? No. Where the writer is, they just find it off the internet. Yeah. And they try really hard to get in touch with the writer, and they're not able to. So they make the production without ever having talked to the writer. The play that they put up reads like a soap opera. So they take their lead from that cultural context. They do their research. And on the page, the play reads like a soap opera. So they decide that that was what the writer's intention was and stage it as such. And they think they are faithful to this text. Yes. They have done their research. They have done their work. They are very good artists, American. So they're missing the cultural context, but they do have the skill and the talent to put up a good show. And then sort of the setup of the piece is that through the play, they actually get to talk to the writer. But in the first mm -hmm. part of the play, when they are acting mm -hmm. the soap opera, the audience doesn't know what is happening on the stage. No, they just see, think that that's the play they've come to see. Exactly. So they think this play is about a soap opera. Yes. Based on a Syrian script. Yes. And uh, Guillermo also does this really fun thing with that text. You know, we always run into this whenever you're working on a piece that's from over there, wherever over there might be. Translation is very hard, especially what we find is Arabic to English translation can be incredibly challenging because exactly. it's a very Arabic is a much more emotive and expressive language. And when you translate the emotions that are in the text directly, it actually kind of sounds funny. In some ways that Guillermo, I think, puts the audience into a Western space. Very much so. And I think that was, I think, the genius of Guillermo in terms of dealing with an issue or a culture that he doesn't know. What he decided to do is to set it here. 
so that he can write the people he knows and through them actually address the issues and the cultural context that's within the piece. Hmm. And then they find the playwright. Yes. And they do a Skype chat. Yes. With a translator present. She's a Syrian refugee in Lebanon, and to conceal her identity, she was wearing shades and a mop of blonde hair. Mm-hmm. And that is when these two worlds collide. And I think the thing that I find really interesting about that aspect is on top of the artistic misunderstanding, Guillermo layers on translation mm-hmm. misunderstanding as well which is a very delicious thing to experience if you are like me someone who speaks it's funny and horrific when it goes wrong and uh, guilt inducing because i'm was born and raised in turkey and then moved to the us as an immigrant so i am very much bilingual but i've misunderstood people who speak farsi or arabic or any of the other languages in the ways that these american artists do and it there is a real incredible painful but delicious recognition of the well-meaning american artist in me which has been one of the things that drew me to the piece is that mm. it i think actually gives me an opportunity to make fun of myself as a well-meaning person who actually does quite a bit of work that is dealing with the middle east i like to think well but that doesn't mean that i don't make mistakes mm. and that's the funny thing about this play is that i know that our production i'm sure is getting something about syria wrong i am sure of it there's no way we have a cultural consultant natalie kankan who did the translation and is providing great context taraji gizarian who's the artistic director of golden thread has provided incredible amounts of research and we've done all of the things that we can do but i'm sure a syrian in the audience what will find it, something wrong what was it about the language or the play that you wanted to make sure you get right Um the thing that was really interesting to me was that Guillermo this is ours is the fourth or fifth production of the play there was not a um official Syrian Arabic translation of the piece written so that was like the first thing that we decided we had to have was that it wasn't just an Arabic translation this needs to be done by a Syrian translator someone who has access to Syrian cultural context so when we found Natalie Kankan who's a professor at Berkeley who is Syrian and Palestinian descent that was a great gift and he, she's an official you know she's a poet she's a translator so she understands artistic translation as well and that's been one of the most exciting things about the play is you know our actress who plays the Syrian person is Egyptian the american white actress who's the translator speaks moroccan arabic <laughs> and our translation and our cultural consultant is syrian and just having the three of them in the room talking to each other and being part of that conversation in itself was an amazing education for me in figuring out even within the cultures that speak the same language and i'm doing air quotes right now there is such a cultural and linguistic difference Guillermo Calderon wrote this in English. Yes. I think the actual play that is performed in English was written in English. I see. But he did have Syrian artists that were in the room while it was being developed. So there is a great deal of stuff that sounds like Arabic translated. I can't say for sure because I don't speak the language if they are direct translations from the original mm-hmm. language, you know. 
but there is... So it was intentional. Intentionally, the play intentionally sounds translated. One of the missions of the Golden Thread production has been for people from diverse lands of the Middle East to tell their own stories. This is a play written by a Chilean playwright and performed by a mix of actors and actresses from different parts of the world. Then the question becomes, who gets to tell the Syrian story in this case? How do you approach that question? One thing that also he explores in this play is the limitations of theater and art and how far you're allowed to go or you want to go or you should go. As a director and as an artist, how do you answer these questions? It is not an easy question to answer, certainly. So Golden Thread's mission specifically has two sides. One is, as you said, really giving people of Middle Eastern North African descent the ability to engage with their own culture and tell their stories in their own words and putting value on that and giving them the production and development support that they usually do not get elsewhere. That's a main thrust of our mission. But another part of our mission is to create an artistic space for artists who are not from these regions but want to actually engage with these regions and their stories and the characters in a truthful, interesting, and authentic manner. And we are uniquely equipped to be able to create that space for them. And this is being produced by Shotgun Players, and we're in association with it. But even on our main stage, The Most Dangerous Highway in the World, uh, which was a play set in Afghanistan, was written by Kevin Artigue, who's from Central California and has no Afghan roots, which I directed a couple of years ago. So that has been part of our mission. And always for our Reorient Festivals, which is a festival of short plays, we try to include voices that are not from the Middle East that are engaging with the region and its stories in an interesting way. Because I think what's so important is that these stories are told by as many people at as many theaters with as many artists as possible. This is not to say that anyone can write anything because we would not be comfortable with this play if we did not have Middle Eastern representation, if we did not have Syrian representation. But even myself, you know, I'm of Middle Eastern descent. I was born and raised in the region. I'm Turkish, which is close, sir, than anyone else, but not the same. And so I am a good director for this play, not because of my personal cultural connection Mm. to the story, but because I have great deal of experience in engaging with stories from different parts of the Middle East so that I know the questions to ask and I know the people that I need to surround myself with. Nowadays, sometimes identity politics becomes so central Mm -hmm. in how we approach certain topics. It can be really difficult because white Americans usually straight men, have owned everything (laughs) when it comes to artistic voice. They have owned all the stories, and they've been supported fully by institutional theaters um, to do that. And now there is what I would call an uprising in the American theater where we are challenging that, and Golden Thread is very much part of this, challenging that monopoly. But that is never to say that A person cannot write a story that's not their own. It just means it requires a great deal of work. And And care. Care. And also that people from that culture 
who have personal connections to these stories better be in the room. Yeah. You know, something he said, Calderon, that I really appreciated. He says, theater and culture need cross-pollination. We need a healthy dose of misunderstanding as well. We need the dirty, complicated relationships because those are the ones that allow us to create new relationships and the understanding of what's going on in our culture and in other cultures. And I think this play represents Very much this so. philosophy. It's been such a joy to see this specific play and all of its misunderstandings and revelations be received by the Middle Eastern, or the, the audience members who have Middle Eastern descent, audience members who speak Arabic versus those who are not of Middle Eastern descent or Arab descent and don't speak the language. Mm. And that different ways of approaching this play and how it's received in the same audience is, I think, a great deal of the experience we want the audience to have. Because Guillermo is so right in the sense that there is this sort of false understanding of how cross-cultural communication happens is that you must be perfect for it to happen. It's an impossible thing to do right, but you have to do it. And that requires all of us to create spaces, especially as artists, where everyone can be their full selves, bring all of the shades of themselves, including culture, and can say some things that are wrong and can get called out. The things that I've learned the most about other cultures has been when I'm in a room working on a play that's dealing with that culture, and I've created rooms in which if I say something wrong, if I say something offensive, I might be called out. So you said in the beginning when uh, you were involved in, in reading of the mm -hmm. play, it raised some questions you didn't understand it. You were thinking, what is this all about? And, and that curiosity was part of why you decided to direct this play. Mm -hmm. How much of that play do you think you understand? How much of the play that people are going to be seeing at Shotgun Theater in Berkeley is basically also your own understanding of that play? This is a play that requires a strong directorial perspective. And so I do want to be honest that what people are experiencing in the room is my version of this play. And I think that's how Guillermo likes it. Mm. Because of the lack of guidance that's in the text, especially at the end, it's really about my take as a Middle Eastern Muslim queer immigrant in the U.S. that's from Turkey and has his own connection to authoritarianism and a way in which a country and a people can be divided, both in Turkey and here. This is my version. This is my take with the group of artists that I have. Um, in terms of understanding it, I think I have a great understanding now of the driving engine of the play, mm -hmm. what keeps these actors going till the end, why they don't give up, and what they're trying to get right. I understand that. Mm -hmm. The thing that's been a real gift through the previews, and I think this is the kind of play, it's true for any theater. Every audience is different. Every performance is slightly different. I've never had a play that is this different every night. Because of what the audience mm. is bringing in terms of their experience and their responses, the journey that our actors, the real actors who are putting this mm. shotgun production on, they have to be so in tune with their audience and with each other and really perform it anew every night. And that has been a joy. I mean, that's why I do theater. This is, you know, otherwise I would do film. 
if I really wanted to have that kind of control, film is a lot better. But this live experience of this play and seeing the audience together decide what they're going to respond to with laughter, what are they going to respond to with tear, what are they going to respond to with horror, that's really joyful. This is written by celebrated Chilean playwright Guillermo Calderon and directed by Evren Ochkin. KISS is presented by Shotgun Players in association with Golden Thread Productions. Performances of KISS run through September 23rd at Shotgun Players located at 1901 Ashby Avenue in Berkeley. For more information, please call 510-841-6500 or visit their website shotgunplayers.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.